0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them, spending time with the Blog2Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Ariel Adams here with the Superlative podcast. My guest today is Mr. Ripley Sellers, and Ripley is the latest member of the Blog2Watch editorial team. Uh, Ripley, Hi.
1: Hi, how's it going?
0: Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you know, we were just chatting a moment ago about how this is, you know, one of our first long conversations that we will have Um, because you are relatively new to the team, and I also thought this is an interesting way of introducing you to the audience, the members of the audience that listens to Superlative, because one of the things that we've talked about is how personality is something that we want to express even more in the blog, watch editorial, and then I think this is sort of a good topic to begin you know, let's talk about the larger idea of talking about watches uh, and personality, the sort of intersection of you're talking about an item, but you get the traffic, you get the attention when you add personality to it. So just based upon what I'm saying, I'd love to think, hear your immediate reaction.
1: Well, I mean, I think personality is kind of one of those things people look for. Um, regardless, I mean, watches is a very product centric hobby, if you, if you will. Um, but w- within that, what people identify with, you know, kind of whatever tribal nature or how what they're drawn to, it is a kind of a physical object. And so to bring that outside of it and make it more relatable, I think personality and opinions are kind of an inherent part of it. Uh, Otherwise, you know, as long as it does what it says on the tin and is capable of doing so, there's not too much more to discuss. It's kind of in the nuances and personalities, people agreeing with each other, the discourse, obviously, that happens when someone has an opinion and all of that. But I think that's what kind of ultimately uh, breathes life into it and makes it more than just, you know, people buying things to wear on
0: their wrists. I think what's important to say is that watch media as it exists today is sort of at the intersection of personality and product, right? It's not enough to just be like, here's an item which exists in the world. You have to add another layer on top of it. So it's the introduction of a product and an opinion layer, we'll call it that, which is really the formula which makes watch media. I don't know if it makes all media, but in our space that's what it is. And that knowing that and knowing that there's so many different potential personalities, I've always sort of hoped for an even more robust market. But for people that are sort of not really aware of the sort of size of watch media give people a bit of a sort of overview and outline of what is what does the landscape of watch media kind of look like
1: i mean it's it's such a strange sort of corner of media because it's people consume it in a manner that you know it how do you do watches? You know, what, what does that look like on a hobbyist level? You know, if someone plays soccer, basketball, they might have a pickup game or be part of a rec league, or even just kind of kick the ball around the house. But like, how do you do watches other than buying them and wearing them? And I think, um, you know, a lot of that is consuming the media that surrounds it, whether it's watching videos, reading reviews, articles, and all of that. And so it's, there's sort we're sort of at this weird crossroad, it seems where, there's a lot of people producing content strictly for entertainment purposes. And obviously that ends up getting monetized once it reaches a certain scale. And then you have the whole other side where it's almost like the most expanded, well-produced product catalog on the planet where a lot of the biggest money and highest level content comes from the same people that are actually selling the watches. And so you kind of see this divide growing where for every dude on YouTube who's you know yelling into the void... Uh, regardless of how big that may get for them, you have the other side where it's this, uh, you know, heavy marketing angle driven by the, you know, the indirectly or directly the brands that are uh, selling the watches on one level or another.
0: So let's, let's unpack that a little bit because I think you said a lot of really important points. And one of the things that I, I think is so crucial, as you said, you know, there's not that much to say because it's not necessarily something that people need to tell the time, right? It's not like, the experts tell me the watches that tell the best time. Like I, there are some, don't get me wrong. But when it comes down to it, that's not what people really buy when they buy most luxury watches. It's actually very difficult to pinpoint what they buy. But what we find is that having a conversation with friends on the same topic, in one way or another, leads to hey, I want to buy one of those. Have you ever noticed that Ripley? That just sort of the process of having a conversation about something can let can can just. Lend itself to immediate desire, whereas moments before you had no interest in something,
1: oh, absolutely. i uh, it's part of the reason having a watch meetups at boutiques are, you know, kind <laughs> of dangerous business on the consumer side of that as far as uh, making purchases. But yeah, absolutely. I think you know, people start talking about things. You start talking about other things uh, related to it. and you know, whether or not you're trying to, uh, if it's, of merit, you may end up talking yourself into, into buying it. So it's, um, it, it kind of makes sense and certainly happens all the time. I find myself, it's in the back of my mind, but after talking about it with someone, it's, well, I've kind of guessed I've talked myself into it. It does make sense to own it and you know, I might buy it.
0: So how did you find yourself in this sort of weird world of watch media? You know, you, we all started in a strange thing. No one grows up being like, I want to be a watch writer when I grow up. How did you enter the space?
1: So I've always loved watches, uh, from like a really early age, like before I could learn how I knew how to tell time on an analog face, you know, so, you know, three years old or so, um, my mom had a Lady date chest, and, uh, I thought it was cool. Cause it had, it was a 69173, so it's got gold bits on it. And, uh, you know, that to a little kid's cool, but, um, I couldn't wrap my head around that. It didn't use electricity or batteries in any capacity and then wound itself and then I also thought it was cool that I was you know could go in the water when she went swimming and all of that. Um, so that kind of started it from a, the interest in watches from a young age. But then as you start playing sports in high school, whatever you had was just going to get nicked out of your gym locker or sports bag. So I stopped wearing them until college and where uh, a friend of mine in, who's a, in an econ class and came from a lot of money was wearing like a rose gold JLC, JLC chrono like in freshman like microeconomics. And he's sitting next to me, and I'm looking at it like, you know, why why do you have that? You know, uh, a a six pack of ramens a considered purchase your freshman year. Well, you, where do you have this? And so, obviously, he has a few other pieces. We got to talking about it, It reminded me I like him. And although I graduated with a degree in econ and was doing technical staff and consulting after college, I hated all of that. You know, I, I didn't want to do econ before I got my degree in it. Two years in, I was. Did had one it was called the dismal science formally. And so I I obviously knew I wanted no part of that, but at that point I'd already finished enough for a major. It made sense to go through with it. Um fell into technical staffing consulting, but hated that. And then after a year of doing that and just sort of burning out and being miserable, I decided I wanted to do something I enjoyed and um at the time my favorite part of working in the world of technical staffing was having these meetings with these big high ups at you know Ticketmaster or whatever and seeing what watches they were wearing cuz you see some really interesting stuff and so i figured well why not look into watches and uh start doing it on a freelance level um really small kind of part time around other stuff i was doing then started working at an independent service center that largely serviced Rolex and started ramping up the writing because I had more of a technical understanding of the subject matter as well as being very fluid with Rolex reference numbers. Um, And from there, it kind of just built and got to the point where I was doing that full time. And then the writing side took over more because with watches, you can kind of choose three spaces. I came to this conclusion early. You can either sell them, which I didn't want to do, uh, repair them or work on the service side, which you're kind of dealing with emotion, people's emotions and memories. And, you know, I gave that a shot and it was interesting, but I didn't have the mindset or hand coordination to be a watchmaker. Uh, and so then that leaves media and talking about them and writing about them. And for me, that's by far the most enjoyable and, um, you know, affords me a much more flexible type of life than, you know, show in, show up, here's a vault, you know, et cetera. So it's, uh,
0: yeah. Watch salespeople have one of the most traditional lifestyles, not necessarily a good way where it's just like super set hours, super set responsibility, tons of paperwork, bureaucracy, just every, everything that seems kind of annoying.
1: Yeah. And there's also so, sort of that I was living in New York at the time, right after school there's kind of that connotation of, oh, you want to buy a watch down on Canal Street. I didn't want to be like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm selling watches. And it doesn't matter if you're doing that on the most elevated scale, like gloves experience in a, you know, six figure watches at a boutique. I just didn't really want that sort of lifestyle or feeling like I was talking people out of their money, uh, directly talking people out of their money. I'm happy to talk about why a watch is cool. And if you want to buy it after I'm okay with that, but I just didn't like the transactional nature of trying to sell a watch. And I did it for a while. I, um, for a summer I worked at the times square fossil store in New York city. Uh, so I, I did. How was that? Um, wild uh you you know what i mean like it's such a crazy crossover hub as far as the people that come through this was literally like right when they rolled out those um high-end swiss made versions that were selling for about around a thousand bucks which back okay yeah yeah yeah. kind
0: of military style pretty basic
1: yeah yeah they're super pared down but you know given that fossils claim to fame was you know hey we sell our watches in these colored kind of collectible tins it was so far out of left field and i remember maybe my third or fourth day working there this guy came in had no point of reference about watches or anything uh bought a couple of random like leather goods looked at it liked it bought it and i'm like that's all right, I guess that's, uh, that's the thing, but yeah, it's just the crossover people you see there. And then there's, they've got other stores, or at least they did back then, uh, right in Manhattan as well. So sometimes you'd kind of float around for di- different bits of product training or whatever.
0: Hearing that made me think of a story unrelated to you, but when I was about 25, 26, I, um, was just at a, like law school and I was starting to work and I walked into a Turneau store at the time in San Francisco and <clears> Turneau <throat> is a different company now, but this sales guy, it was a really bad experience. And within, I'm not kidding, about three minutes of speaking, he literally said, are you gonna give me a job? As though the imp- entire point of our conversation was that I would hire him out of turn for some other thing. And I'm like, I- I'm thinking in my mind, like, sir, do you know that you're actually older than me? Like, <laughs> and, and it was, and I'm thinking like, this is turn this is what buying a watch has become, like some type of weird, like, you know, attempt at networking because the pay is so low, like, people don't realize that, you know, even though the product itself watches is cool, there's actually not a lot of super enjoyable, some, but not a lot of super enjoyable jobs in the space. Thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's not, you know, given the price point of watches where mechanical Swiss made watch, we're talking at just shy of a thousand bucks and we go up to literally millions of dollars for some of them. And the people who put these together, like the whole reason we like And celebrate watches. Oh, the craftsmanship, the hand finishing. We need to pay those guys better. You know what I mean? Like, unless you're on a really high level, what watchmakers are earning isn't, you know, and the lifestyles a lot of them live isn't necessarily what you're expecting in these, you know, wonderful natural light ateliers or what have you. It's, um, I know a lot of guys in the industry who do it, and it's a lot of it's a grind. You know, it's a well lit environment certainly, but it's a grind and it's not as glamorous as, you know, what the uh, visit of the manufacturer video will often make it seem when you're yeah, doing I wanna, it.
0: Yeah, I want to clarify that. That's a very important point you made there, Ripley. What people need to know is that whether or not the watch you're selling costs $500 or $500,000, you as the technical person having anything to do with it basically makes the exact same amount of money.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it, that's the, yeah, that's, that's kind of one of those crazy things The you know, a replacement balance bridge might cost... A factor of a hundred or a thousand or what have you, but uh, when it actually comes to what they're paying the person installing it, the the delta is not is not that whatsoever. And that's if you're lucky enough to even work on a full movement. If you work for some of the big brands, like employed by the brands themselves for their in-house service centers, sometimes you're not servicing a whole watch. You're assigned to like automatic assemblies of you know, X, Y, or Z types of calibers. And, you know, you don't get the full soup to nuts experience where for at least some of the watchmakers, I know that was something they really enjoyed where they have a project and it's about executing it start to finish as well as possible and seeing the visible results on the time grapher or pressure test tank or what have you, um, where that's not at all a purpose. If you're just, Oh, you know, troubleshooting, reversing wheels all day. Um, so, yeah, it's not nearly as glamorous, and that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I definitely don't have the hand coordination to do that. So, yeah, I'm much better with a keyboard than a tiny set of screwdrivers.
0: Now, a couple of times in this conversation, you use the word hobby, and that's correct. Watches are a hobby, and it's some a term that I've been applying to this entire pursuit over the last 12 months or so. But prior to that. And the entire time that I was into watches before I started working in it, that term was never used. In fact, over 15 years of of doing this, other than when I started using it, I really can't remember a single instance where this hobby was referred to as a hobby. And one of the awkward things is nobody knew what to call the hobbyists. They were like, are they buyers? Okay, they are those. Are they consumers or those? Are they collectors? Maybe enthusiasts, guests, watch lovers, uh, you know, uh, rich, rich people. Um, you know, like there's no one's really been able to identify what it is or who they're selling to, because I guess it's a little bit of a variety, but why do you think there's been fear to label this a hobby or at least even acknowledge that it's a hobby? Well,
1: I think, like I said, how do you do watches? Like I struggle to find something where there's, as much of an enthusiast level that at least I understand or have experienced that doesn't is entirely devoid of a way of participating in it with other people other than simply talking about them and looking at them together. You know, if it's sports, you play them. If it's other things you can watch them with other people or go meet up at the sports bar or, you know, or if it's a, you know, trading card game, you play it or you go to kind of these sort of conventions or, you know, but, but like I, I, with watches, how do you do watches? And I think, so I think that big hesitation is like, it is such a product focused industry to call it a hobby. It, you know, people might ask uh, for clarification or qualification behind why, what makes it a hobby, but like, at the end of the day, there's people spending hours of their time on it, uh, for recreational purposes, um, going to meetups who have nothing to do with the watch industry for being there for networking or, you know, work reasons. And it's just something they like to do. So I, you know, I think it is very much legitimately a hobby. I just think that's been the biggest hesitation. It's because it doesn't look like a regular hobby when people are participating in it together. It almost looks like group shopping or something like that.
0: But you agree that if you just refer to it as a hobby, so many more ways of approaching it seem to make sense. Like not calling it a hobby for ego reasons or presentation reasons or whatever it is, don't you think it's prevented so many people from approaching the consumer experience the right way? Because if you think of it as a hobby, for example, and I say this, I think it's really important and maybe it's a little bit different for us cuz we work in it but you you spend money on your hobby you make money in your job yes you can combine both some people are lucky to both make and spend money in the same space which we all do at a blog to watch but I I think it's very important to clarify to people that you spend money on your hobby those individuals out there who like buy watches trying to flip them and stuff like that and people are like all oh, those collectors no 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 those guys aren't collectors. Yeah, they're buying watches, but they're not collectors and they're not hobbyists. They're, they're something else. And I think it's important to distinguish not only how people are acting in this space, but also who we're speaking to. And again, as an economist, you appreciate that these people's behaviors are different and they all have a different economic impact on this on this industry.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you there. I think... Um calling it a hobby and just just like what it is opens the doors a lot because in the same way that there's a lot of people who like sports but don't play the sports you can like watches and be into watches on an enthusiast level on a hobbyist level if you will uh and not be buying the things I feel that way about every single hyper watch over six figures that comes out that I find interesting you know I'm not a buyer for it in the same way that most people who are, you know, reading reviews or watching videos on supercars aren't actually buying that $500,000 Ferrari. Um, But they like the technical prowess behind it, they think they're interesting. I think it's a, you know, breaking down that door a little bit and calling it a hobby makes it a little bit more okay to participate in watches for lack of a better term, and kind of divorces it from the notion that you actually have to be buying these things, wearing them participating in it on a consumer level to get enjoyment out of discussing them, learning about them, you know, everything that doesn't involve spending money on them.
0: Yeah. And I think that it's also important to recognize that, you know, you coming from a from a interesting, you're sort of coming from a marketing element to to media, not sort of like a journalism background. I don't really have a journalism background, which is fine. But you began sort of in the in the process of I have to write about these to help sell them, and I enjoy writing about them, and I enjoy what I have to say, so I can do more than that. But I want you to talk a little bit about the mindset of the people who who own those companies that are doing the selling. Oftentimes, they're not really into watches. They don't really kind of get why people buy watches. Um I'm sure you've been around a lot of people that are actively involved in selling watches, but don't seem to quite understand why somebody would buy the thing. That they're selling do you have any experience in that because I, I I love talking about how there's sort of a a a lack of intersection sometimes be, behind the people who are buying watches and the people trying to make money selling them
1: Oh, I think it goes both ways, actually. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. There's, I think, um, especially when you get to the big brand level where the, uh, the higher ups are higher ups for their business acumen, not necessarily because of their watch knowledge or, you know, passion for the subject matter. The people, you know, the Jean Claude Beavers are kind of the exceptions in that regard, but a lot of businesses where it's a, you know, it's a multinational business that has a lot of different heads outside of watches, yeah, it's uh the, the leaders aren't necessarily watch people. But then for every single one of those, you have a guy spending insert massive sum of money for like a Rolex Daytona and says, Hey, what are these things on either side of the crown do? And why are there all these other hands? And you're going, you know, you're spending as much as like a five series BMW list price on a watch and you clearly knew which one you wanted. How do you not know the core thing that's defined this watch since it, before it even became the Daytona, like, you know, I understand if you don't understand the history and all that, but like, if you don't know what it does on the tin, why do you want it? And obviously that gets at a different thing of, because, you know, hype and status and all of that. But I think it is really interesting how so often the people creating the watches, you know, and I'm not talking about small brands where it's three guys and, you know, it's a kind of that very independent level but on a big level how the people involved on a kind of a cardinal level aren't necessarily enthusiasts themselves other than it being kind of the lifeblood of their uh or their at least at that point in life the lifeblood of their how they make their living
0: okay so talk a little bit more about that talk about some of the clashes because i think that some of the fights that people have because i mean people that sell watches often like to complain, like, oh, goddamn collectors, such a pain in the ass. And then the people buying them are like, these guys are greedy and skeezy. and will try to sell me things that suck. Like, talk about some of the common conflicts and, and maybe how they're resolved. Um, I think a lot of it
1: has to do with there's not a lot of communication. And when the, you know, they kind of rely on outlets like a blog to watch to sort of serve as that intermediary to whether it's to tell the story of a watch or to convey, you know, market movements or trends, but, um, it kind of, it has to be work both ways. They can't expect that us to tell the story if they don't really want to work with us in every capacity. But at the same time, I think that's, you know, I I don't, I I don't know. I think it's, it's interesting where they either need to invest a lot of their own money or really sort of open up to sort of explain what they're doing more because often there really is a reason if there's not a reason that needs to be reevaluated. But sometimes, and I'm, I'm sure you see it as often as I do, there's a press release where it's not really clear why they're doing what they're doing. And that can come down to why a new watch exists. That can come down to decisions the company's making on a, you know, a brand level. But I think some of it just comes down to a lack of communication and an unwillingness to sort of double down and say, okay, we need to tell this, you know, the story of the watch or the story of what's going on in the company and this rebranding effort we're doing better we can't expect to just throw out a two-page press release. Hope these guys are going to cover it, and assume that's going to make it to the consumer who might not be pouring through our the media we put out on a consistent basis. You know, uh, some people very lightly touch into the hobby, and if they don't aren't very much on top of it, unless the brands are doing a really good job of telling their stories, it's not really going to make sense to the customers, or um, at least not in any meaningful way that they're going to be able to digest it and you know let it let it, you know, accurately form an opinion.
0: Does it sometimes amuse you how ineffective the overall communication is from the companies that make some of these things? Like you and people like you had to sort of find randomly these roles, which are essentially communication roles, but it's because of a massive vacuum that exists because they don't do a particularly good job of it. And actually no watch brand does. Japanese watch brands are ineffective communication in, in other ways. It's not that they don't get messages out there, but the messages are often like not the entire story. Like the Japanese are great at technical discussions, but very rarely tell you like why you might like it in the first place. And the Swiss talk about emotions, but don't really seem to go too much further than that a lot of the time. It's it's just funny how they have never been able to seem to add on too much more effort after making the watch. Like after the watch is done, they're like, oh, OK, we're we're tired. That's it.
1: Yeah, and I think for a lot of them, they our product people wasn't up to them. At least, like the old Swiss industry, um, you know, they were selling to their retailer net networks. There wasn't this online commerce. They didn't need to be a. Every brand now has to basically be a lifestyle brand, whether they want to or not, because they're now put on that global digital medium where they have to have a persona. Otherwise, they're just this you know faceless conglomerate that pumps out watches. So they're forced to do this. They're not necessarily used to it, but there's something they haven't had to do before. It was easy when they could just make a watch, make it awesome, show it at Baselworld, sell it to their retailers. And then it's up to the retailers and the salespeople to sell the watch to the actual end customer. But, you know, it now half the brands sell direct to consumer. And uh, those that don't, I think they're still trying to figure out that, oh, we actually need to sell the watches or, you know, invest in having other people tell that story to help sell the watches for us. Cause we, you know, we, this isn't our expertise. We are product, we're a product brand. We make watches, you know, not everyone, jack of all trades, master of none type of thing. So I understand that.
0: But they've seen this coming for a very, very long time. I mean, everything you're saying is absolutely correct. No doubt. And thank you for, you know, articulating that well, but From the death of Macy's and stores like it, brands have been seeing this tendency that they have to spend a lot more effort into creating demand and finding an audience. So many of them have actually invested into a direct-to-consumer model. Yet despite telling them again and again and again how much money they're going to have to spend to make it all work, they seem to resist that message. So you're sort of acting as though they've been blindsided when the reality is like they saw this coming for like, I don't know, 25 years?
1: Oh, no, definitely. It's not like it's come out of nowhere, but they haven't been forced to do it. I think um, COVID obviously, the pandemic forced a lot of brands to sort of ramp up on those efforts. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's been happening for a while. But, you know, obviously the Swiss watch industry has never been praised for its, you know, how fast it moves in any capacity. So I'm not shocked that it's not, you know, we're not, we're they're now just waiting until it's, Beyond a necessity to the point where it's even becoming something that some of them are thinking about, but yeah, it's no they should have they should have sorted it out long ago, and um you know some that have do or do a better job, obviously, you can t- see kind of how that's uh benefited them you know in the last several years,
0: so you know, I think you'll agree that different types of countries bring different things to the equation, so America were Really good at sales and great at communication, but maybe we're not like the best watch makers and things like that. Um, in Switzerland, they have their you know their benefits, their ups and downs, and things like that. What do you what do you wish we were better at that the Swiss are good at? Because we always say tell the Swiss do this, do this that way. Where are some of the things that America could learn from the Swiss? Because obviously there is not a thriving luxury watch in, you know industry in America. There's a lot of little brands trying to get off the ground. What do you, what do you think we could learn from them?
1: I think we could learn, um, I mean, a, a, a little bit of kind of the old approach where you, we don't, I, the industry places now a lot of emphasis on everyone does everything in house. We're, we're making our own alloys. We're making our proprietary this and that we're going to do everything, our own in-house movement. And sometimes in-house isn't better. I can make my own in-house homemade pasta sauce. It might not be better than what comes out of the Prego jar. I'm not a chef, you know, so, On a certain degree, are you really going to make a better movement than ETA who, you know, think about the number, hundreds of thousands, millions of these movements that have been used in the wild and field tested. That's about as refined as it's going to get. I think America can kind of learn a bit from the Swiss in that regard of the old way of producing watches where we're going to, people are going to specialize in different things. And we might still get our movements from Switzerland or Japan or what have you. But it'd be nice if we could just say, hey, we're going to do cases really well. Uh, Obviously, synthetic sapphire production is something. Oh, we might be going to Asia for that to build our American watch. But we're going to do cases well. You know, Carnegie Steel. We've got the American uh, heritage for for the metal work and what have you. But I think it'd be cool if we just sort of realized we don't need to make a watch soup to nuts. We can get really good at one part of it that's how switzerland built the industry and if we we could be the number one case manufacturer in the same way that some nations are the go-to place for synthetic sapphire crystal production you know but obviously cases is a bit more glamorous
0: that's an interesting idea where we become not a place that we could replicate what switzerland does but we find a few things that switzerland doesn't have enough of or doesn't you know do as well and we hyper You're right. Sapphire cases are something that um, seem to be popular and it seems to be more parts for it. I don't know the infrastructure involved, but that's an area that there needs more of. Silicon escapements, for example, that's another thing which requires highly specialized equipment, some of which exist in America. Um, but that's an interesting approach. I, um, I, I like that. Let's talk about social media for, for a second. I make a statement sometimes that I think rubs people the wrong way, but I, I, I stand behind it. And that is for the first few years of being into watches, you should avoid looking at watches on social media. I have a lot of reasons for that. What, you know, But social media is intrinsically linked to the hobby these days. Talk about how your experience with watches and getting into it has been shaped, influenced, for better or worse, by social media.
1: I mean it hasn't. I uh I got into watches before social media existed and those who know me in my personal life know I'm like a 75-year-old man trapped in like a you know the body of someone in their 30s. Like I I like you can go find my personal Instagram. There's like 600 followers of Yeah, this isn't something I do. My Facebook look, anyone who's on there probably thinks I died in college or something like that, you know. I'm not a big social media person at all. And so it wasn't until I, I basically made one out of necessity so I could kind of casually talk to people overseas in the industry without, you know, jumping into their WhatsApp at an inconvenient time of the day or night or what have you for them. Um, but it, I, I basically did exactly what you're suggesting and I think I'm all the better for it. Um, again, I, I think some of my tastes and watches are pretty generic, but I feel that they're earnest because, you know, I, I, that developed entirely before it was even a thing. You know what I mean? Like I, I always wanted a Submariner um, because I thought my mom's date Datejust was cool when I was three years old that she could like wear it when we went swimming up at the lake in like Three Rivers, California in the summers. Um, when I found out that Rolex made a watch that was w- w- like three times as water resistant as my mom's date Datejust made for scuba divers. I'm like, oh, I'm here for it. You know, I wanted that. I wanted it when I was a little kid. And the one I saw on everyone's wrist growing up in like the early nineties, uh, is the one six, six one zero. So I bought one when I could, but that was way before the hype. That was when you could, you know, not just find one in dealers, but you know, find a discount on them on the gray market. And I could never afford one today, but like, is that a generic taste? Absolutely. But did it develop totally devoid of any external input? Sure. And so I'm okay with that, but yeah, I think now you go on Instagram You open up, you follow some hashtag related to watches and you're going to be bombarded by Submariners. And, you know, at that point, it's like, why do you want one? Because an algorithm's told you it's cool or because you have any reason to like it outside of your, uh, you know, outside of your digital presence.
0: Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the blog to watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Ablog2Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The ablog To watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at Ablog2Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.blogtowatch.com. That's store.blogtowatch.com. Make make the case to anyone else who may just be getting to watch this right now. You know, give them a persuasive argument to sort of put down that social media thing, even if they sort of picked it up a little bit. But like, you know, you said you were the better for it. I have my reasons. But why, why would you uh, say that it's a good idea to wait a few years before you get into a public conversation about this stuff?
1: I, I think it's just there's so many watches and they all do the same thing. You really have to be honest with yourself why you like one thing over another. And if that doesn't develop in a vacuum, and if so much of that is like a numerical figure of this got this many likes, or this got this many likes you know, it's, it then kind of taints it, you know, even just reading about the stuff online, at least you're going to be Googling the models or whatever that you most resonate with. But when it's there's that social media element where there is literally an algorithm driving what you're shown and what, you know, that endorphin hit of, Oh, it got likes or whatever. I, you know, it, there's no way to earnestly develop a, your own sense of taste when that's being surrounded with you. And you're not going to discover stuff because you like two pictures of a Submariner, you're going to get served nothing but Rolex sports watches until the end of time. And that's to be honest like that's not where you're going to find interesting designs whatsoever you know they've been making the same watches for decades so i i think some of it is do a little bit of digging because you're otherwise never going to find stuff and if you only expose yourself to what you've already liked and instagram's going to pitch to you you're not going to discover anything you're just in that filter bubble in the echo chamber so i um you know one, it makes more sense to find the stuff other people don't like because it's cheaper. But two, that's also where you're going to find those connections. You're never going to bro out with someone because you're wearing a Submariner and they're wearing a Submariner at the bar. Um, but yeah, if you're both wearing like even a Nomos, let alone like an mb f or something, yeah, you made a best friend. You guys have something to talk about and you're, uh, you're, you're probably going to be talking about it for a while there.
0: I want to say something that's a bit provocative. You don't have to agree with me, um, but I thought about it and it's actually something that people at the company i'm about to talk about actually agree with when you start out getting into watches you should be wholeheartedly bored by rolex you should have no desire for a rolex not because it's a bad watch it's a great watch because it's boring you should get into rolex only after spending a bunch of time with watches and appreciating what rolex has brought to the table how they're classic the quality If you're immediately getting into Rolex watches, there's a problem. One, you're going to be skipping out on a whole universe of stuff that's going to teach you who you are and what you like. And you're not really going to be able to appreciate what's good about Rolex when when you're into it. So social media isn't going to allow you to do that. Social media is going to deceive you into thinking this is really all you should be caring about because people say a bunch of stuff about it and thumbs up it. But go with your natural instinct, which I'm guessing for most people is to just be bored by Rolex be bored by Rolex, experience a bunch of other stuff, and then later on you might come around to Rolex, or you might remain bored by Rolex. And and people at Rolex love to call their brand boring. They don't know why there's all this fuss about. It. They're like, oh, we're Rolex. We're I know we're nice, but we're so boring. Like they don't mean they're not saying it in a way that's like um, criticizing themselves. It's like self-deprecating humor. But the idea is, like, if you're a young person getting excited about watches and want to learn new stuff, Rolex shouldn't even be on your radar.
1: I both agree with you wholeheartedly and also with a caveat of disagreement. I entirely agree. If there's nothing about that design language or if you look at a sub and you look at, like, a Fifty Fathoms and you say the sub's boring – Absolutely. Don't, don't ever circle back to Rolex until you're bored and really can appreciate it. If you either really are drawn to the design language or like me for forced to just go full into Rolex because of work, you kind of, you will get, you will see why people are interested in the company and you kind of just start to get an interesting perspective on the industry as far as why is Rolex Rolex and why is it a company that on the surface look is so boring not does look so boring is so boring, but at the same time is universally regarded as great at what they do, even by independents who make, you know, a dozen watches a year that Rolex is admired for their consistency and, um, you know, just what they're, but they're an enigma. That's part of why I find them interesting. Um, coming from it on the econ side, like, what other company operates at that scale in the luxury segment, no less is, and is also this like weird tax Haven nonprofit thing, you know, like I I think that's fascinating by itself. So while Rolex watches are objectively boring, if you like them, you like them and go down that rabbit hole, because if you study them, you're going to learn why Rolex is Rolex. And that's a whole other rabbit hole. But if you, even if you just like it because of the hype, make sure you like it do your homework and you're going to find a whole rabbit hole of weirdness in that company and strange things about them and everything that they do and i think it's a, it's a worthwhile endeavor that if it is worth learning about it can just come at an earlier point in your collecting journey and if the thing that gets people into watches is oh rolex it's expensive whatever and if that ultimately gets them interested in the hobby oh well so be it that's how i arrived here and you know I agree they're boring and I agree that if you look at, you know, a Rolex and aren't immediately attracted to it or find the company itself interesting, yes, please move forward and look at every single other brand before you come back to Rolex because they will always be there.
0: It's very strange though that yes, they will always be there, but it's in this weird thing where they're so hard to get that there's an undeniable attraction to wanting to own one because of how known it is that they're hard to get. And this has been the strangest thing for me as a new development in the watch space. Now, getting into watches, it was always abundantly clear that I wasn't going to be able to afford most of the stuff. So it was already out of my hands. And I knew that there was other people out there that had the money that could get it. But never has a time been in my my time in the watch industry where you couldn't get a lot of stuff at 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 any price at retail, well, you can get it at a higher price, but the idea was that there was such a lack of availability in so many ways, and that has added a new level to watch collecting that or the you know watch buying that it hasn't really existed before. Do you agree that this is sort of unsustainable in a sense that it will eventually have to work itself out
1: oh absolutely i i mean it it doesn't make sense or I mean, not at a company that works at a scale like Rolex like you know, RM, sure. You know, those are that I, I was remarking the other day on how like Richard Mille was a brilliant idea. Let's make something that intrinsically isn't all that expensive, but the whole point of it is that it is expensive and it's going to be very different in all of that. But they don't make enough watches a year to the point where that can't be sustainable as long as they can kind of perpetuate the hype. Rolex, who's making north of a million watches, that isn't sustainable where every single model everywhere is perpetually sold out all the time. That's not, that's definitely not sustainable. And it's also, you know, not good for people getting into the hobby if they fall in love with Rolex and can't get what they want. And, you know, actually maybe it is good for their hobby because they can't get the sub, they look into sub alternatives, and then they open a whole other can of worms of as far as what other watches exist outside the Daytona. And then they arrive at the Speedmaster and, you know, maybe they're into watches then. So, yeah, maybe it is a good thing that no one can buy a Rolex because that's just been the obvious choice for too long. You know, maybe maybe it's just forced people to kind of spread their wings a bit and discover other brands, but um, I don't think it's sustainable one way or the other.
0: Let's also talk about the psychology of Rolex denial. And, you know, Rolex has been not just a watch, but an item that people buy to reward themselves when they want to celebrate. Uh, And there's a lot of times where people have milestones. They feel like they've accomplished something, something at work, uh, a personal accomplishment, age, anniversary. So they go to the Rolex store nearby them or their dealer, whatever. And, you know, they feel like a big shot and they wear the watch to feel like a big shot. But then as you feel like a big shot, you're just being told no. And it's not like jump through this hoop and it's yes. It's just like, no. And so the psychology is so shocking to some people that I'm sure people have flipped out. Like, I really think that Rolex and their dealers have received some of the nastiest notes, you know, had their homes TP'd or something like that. Like, I'm just imagining the vitriol which Rolex has unwittingly received as a result of all the people it's had to deny. Because no one seems to understand, right, why, right? Your regular consumer isn't like, oh, okay, Rolex, that makes sense so great for you that it's so popular. Well, I'm going to leave now. No, they're like, why the hell can't you sell me a watch? You can't tell me when it's here. What are you talking about? These are so expensive. I see them all the time. They're advertised everywhere. Why are you saying I can't buy one? This is what is going on. Like, it's it's a crazy psychology, right?
1: One hundred percent. And
0: I mean, you need to be in
1: deep to even grasp why it's they're unavailable. You know what I mean? Like it, it it takes a brief it's like a TED talk to explain to someone, no, it's not even that many people want them. A lot of it's speculative people thinking they're gonna make a bundle. If they throw their name on the wait list, they can go triple their money on this Daytona, but like, no, they don't actually want it. I always think it'd be interesting, like if there you could just like wave a magic wand and no one who bought a Rolex could sell it, like ever. Like you, you got to wear it. You got to keep it. You can do whatever you want with it, but you just can't sell it. It can't be a monetary tool. It'd be so interesting to see like how many Daytona's would show up in the windows within the next few weeks if people weren't buying it solely as a financial tool. If it was, do you really want that thirteen for fourteen, fifteen thousand dollar watch enough to keep it in perpetuity? I have a feeling that is a fraction of the number of people that are actually phoning the retailers about it. So I think that would be. Fascinating, and I'm sure that you know a lot of people buying these watches are I don't want to say entitled, but they have means, they may not be used to being told no a lot. And buying a Rolex may not be the most expensive watch at all that they've bought that year, and being told no isn't something they want to hear. But at the same time, I you know Rolex is Rolex, and it's not like they need the business, so I'm sure they've received plenty of hate for it. They're doing what they can, but I also don't see it changing anytime soon or, you know, um, at least on not any way that's going to be communicated to the customers.
0: So do you say to people, if you can't buy a Rolex, go buy something else, or do you have other advice for them?
1: I ask them why they want to buy a Rolex in the first place. I bought my first Rolex because I was working on the service side, and my least favorite question was, so what Rolex do you own? And I tell them, I don't own one. They're like, why? I'm like, well, I've got student loans and, you know, I'm in my 20s and, you know, <laughs> it was a very I mean, easy- I like a
0: gold president, of course. Yeah. But
1: I mean, they weren't that expensive at that point in time. So I bought a little 5,500 Air King that had a destroyed bracelet that could, you know, fit two thirds of my wrist and needed, so it wasn't running. And I bought it for next to nothing, took a year and a half to get it serviced, spent more to service it than I'd spent on the watch. And, I then could finally say I had one. I get it. I get why people want to own one just so they can say they own one. But as someone who owns a couple, they're not all that great watches. Like the first thing I'll say to someone who wants to buy a Rolex and is telling me, "Oh, how do you know any way I can get one or why, you know, why do you want one? Do you want one cuz someone told you it's cool? Uh, or do you want one cuz it's a great watch? There's a million great watches so mega will sell you a dive watch at arguably about half the price of a sub that's better so you know on paper so i i I, you know if you don't really want a sub for a specific reason or really want the daytona why do you want the rolex like is it a name thing if so there's other names that have cachet that might be easier to get is it a something else but that's usually the first question of why do you want it in the first place but I'll, i'll usually if if they're just looking for a nice watch i'll point them over to Omega or Breitling or find a find a brand at a similar price point with the design language you like. But so many of them make great watches, you know, you, you're not going to go wrong too wrong.
0: And what happens if they're stubborn and they're like, no, I want the Rolex. Like, do you just give up? You're like, okay, good luck. Cause I, sometimes I fight really hard, but they're like, so convinced. They're like, I, I need that Rolex. I need it. I'm like, but do you, do you really like, they're like, it's worth so much. I'm like, well, have you actually tried to sell it, or is it just theoretical value?
1: Well, I think it's so weird the value of worth when it's not when it's something you want to own. You know what I mean? Like there's people clamoring to buy a fifteen thousand dollar watch because they know it's worth forty five. But are they trying to sell it immediately for forty five, or do they just want to own the fifty thousand dollar watch and have only spent fifteen to get it? You know, I I, I think like the reason people want to own it is can vary as well. But I think it's so strange that people fixate on the value of these things if they're not approaching it from the business perspective of, great, you buy that Daytona, flip it. If they want to own the Daytona, why do you want to own the Daytona? The fact that it's worth a lot of money is not necessarily a good thing. You It's just a greater reason for someone to rip it off
0: of your wrist one day. Does that security element change how you do what you do, and I think it's interesting. Over the last couple of years, we've all had to hear stories about watches being stolen, robberies, some of them violent, crazy things like that. And until relatively recently, we could, you know, talk about expensive things, wear them, especially in America, without any any real repercussions. Do you think that them being dangerous will decrease their popularity or increase their popularity? Because sometimes it becomes more taboo and more cool to wear it if it's dangerous. Oh, I, I, I don't know.
1: I, um, I mean, I, I live in LA, you know what I mean? So I'm, I see an AP on someone's wrist. If the rest of their outfit doesn't entirely speak to it or the location I'm seeing it on them, I just assume it's fake. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, half of the watches you see these days are fake. And I, you know, I definitely wouldn't want to go get my arm cut off for some fake watch. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know why people are doing that necessarily, but I don't think, think it's, I don't think the crime surrounding watches is going to really persist all. I think right now for the first time, watches are like on a public level of awareness and people realize they're worth a lot of money. Uh, and so we're seeing that kind of spike in crime, but like, you know, there's a lot of things that are also worth money, but you don't necessarily see it being something that it's, per, you know, it, it's plagued by crime from one year to the next. For a while, people were stealing the copper wiring out of light posts because they could sc- sell it for scrap. That doesn't happen I, that anymore. That depressed
0: me so much when I was oh. hearing that. I was like, oh my god, really? Or like down the streets, like all these catalytic converters being cut, literally like sawed out of cars underneath them for like the couple of dollars of platinum in there. Some nonsense.
1: Oh, 100%. Or like sawing the head off of a statue where it's just like, for the love of god, it's not... It's it's not worth anything. It's scrap metal. It's just going to cost a fortune to repair that now. You know it's, it, but it's the same thing. People break into cars, and it's just like every single time I've ever had my car broken into. Please, if you just knocked or called me, I would have come down, unlocked the thing, and you could have whatever's in there. There's nothing in there, but now I have to fix my window or whatever.
0: You know. When I lived in San Francisco, it was quite <laughs> common for cars to have signs that just said "There's nothing in here," <laughs> like. Oh. We like saw them right out all of the, the time.
1: Car. They still yeah. are like that. We were up there at Windup, up, uh, you know, what in April or a few months ago. And in the few days that we're there, you know, right in front of us, right by Gary square, broad daylight, weekend day car pulls up, two guys get out, punch out the windows of some car with Washington plates and start hauling out golf bags. And I'm like, yeah, that happens. Of course you see littered every single car with either tinted windows or something. There's something stuck on the windshield nothing in the car, car's vacant, no stereo, some, some sign to that effect. So yeah, that still goes on. Um, and a friend of ours who lives up there says it's, uh, I guess they they don't, you know, um, they don't really pursue those crimes at all. So it, it happens.
0: I'm wondering if that's a funny, ironic shirt, something that says in a tasteful way, don't worry, my watch is fake or something like that.
1: I mean, I've got such a baby face to begin with. And I'm, you know, if I don't have somewhere to be, I'm, I'm dressed like, fairly garbage walking my dog or something you could you could give me a solid gold the, the, like a full gold nautilus like give me something really recognizable and w- let me walk through one of the worst neighborhoods not a soul would rob me they would just assume i've got i mean some 12 year old who got something from a vending machine you know i
0: i, I think so, <laughs> but that, that was me when i was living in san francisco because i was still you know reviewing all these fancy watches walking through some of the worst areas there. And, and you know, the funny thing was like, it wasn't even a security risk because nobody had any idea what those things were. If I didn't have drugs on me or whatever, they didn't care. But it was the, the thing I remember thinking was, you know, it's a real shame that these people can't appreciate what's on my wrist. <laughs> 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 and, and that's one of the reasons I left. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of tired in my day-to-day life being in a context that's so inappropriate to the thing I spend my every working day on. Like you have to live it a little. Otherwise it's like, it's too weird if all of your watch collecting hobby is theoretical. Like if it's all online, right. You know what I mean? Oh
1: yeah. 100%. And I think it's also rarely, I can't think of something else that's so small and takes up so little room and can trade hands without a record that costs so much money. You know what I mean? Like you can have a $800 car. And if you sell that to someone else, it, there's registration involved. It, you know, there's a paper record. It has to change hands. There's documentation. You know, I I can have a fifty thousand dollar watch. Hand it to you. You don't need to insure it. You don't need to. You know, it, it's it's crazy. You can't. More cash would take up more room. So, it's wild that there, these objects exist at these price points. And it's even more wild when they are existing in environments where you know people are fighting over coins are literally enough to eat that day um, and some of them are so liquid that it would be a life-changing amount of
0: money for them well, let's change topics because we're actually uh, nearly done with the show it's been a good conversation so far and I want to talk about blog to watch and your position there Tell people a little bit about what it is you do at a blog to watch and then talk about what you hope to accomplish are there particular types of things you want to say do you have an agenda? something you want to learn, some experience you want to have. I, I'm, I'm curious. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, I guess, uh, right now I'm doing a lot of the news stuff, have a few hands-on articles. Some are always, you know, sponsored posts are always moving in the background. Um, but lar- yeah, largely taking over a lot of the news stories, which, uh, if I'm being entirely honest, isn't where I'd like to see myself long-term. It's just, you know, it's, uh, you always relentless and it, news is something that's an inherent part of a blog watch. So it's always going to be something I feel like we're all doing on some level, even if it's covering I've just done the,
0: thousands of them.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but strictly dedicated to the news isn't necessarily, uh, where I think I'd be strongest just cause it's, um, it's, it's something that is, you know, what, what can we really say enlightening about a watch that no one's ever seen it in person? The announcement's four hours old and, you know, th- th- maybe we'll get a hands-on later in the year or something like that. I think that.
0: you do a pretty good job at it so far.
1: I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, I think just sort of bringing in my perspective to it, uh, I've always liked a blog to watch. I've, you know, always admired what they put down. It's, I think it's great. One of the reasons why I wanted to work with the blog to watch is that they, you guys don't sell watches. You know, we don't have a, the the store isn't where you're buying your watches. And that's so freeing when it comes to writing about them. Um, I'm a firm believer that almost any watch is worth discussing about. and has some merit there, but, um, that gets murky really quick when there's a commerce side to it and you're trying to cover it as yourself in an objective manner. So I, um, I've always been a fan of the site and just kind of want to contribute and help build it out. And, um, you know, on the press side, we don't take the watches apart for good reason. Uh, but
0: I on this you want to, you can. I, I,
1: <laughs> I, I, I've got a Citizen uh, here that they were kind enough to send over that I have to photograph. Still, uh, if it's not bad form, they, it literally says "Service Center Only" to open up the back of it, though. So I,
0: yeah, they all say those. Yeah, I,
1: I know. I've got the tool. I don't, <laughs> but um, but you know, I, I think just some of that. A lot of people don't know gold Rolexes have hollow cases. You know, like that's one of those things like people are like, oh, they make the same gold watches to the same standards as the steel ones. It's like, yeah, the gold sub is a 300 meter depth rating. It's not a gold version of the steel case. There's a pretty large open space around the movement because that saves Rolex, you know, probably at least a couple hundred dollars in gold on each case. And they're producing. I know and it's it,
0: it, $37,000 over the cost right now. They're really they're just barely making any money.
1: Oh, right, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and it seems so so ridiculous that they skimp out there when it's just like that's got that's like three or four bracelet links. And at that price point, just just fill it in and make it's it look like that. what I call it maximum
0: Swissness. <laughs>
1: but I mean other brands will other brands will give you a bit more gold for the money, but you know, just some of those things where I, you know, people don't talk about how quickly crowns and tubes wear out or how frequently those are replaced or how how glue is. <laughs> such an inherent part of watches like it is everything these days. And I think it's just um, I'm very interested by the technical elements of it. Uh, So I think that even though brands don't often like to explore that, that's something I'd like to do a bit more, you know, what is, you know, carbon's fancy plastic. If you really want to get down, down to it, it's remarkable in terms of its properties. But when you hear about something, something, something suspended in a composite, what that really means is there's some resin there holding something else in place uh, and yes, it can be remarkably durable and all of that. But, um, uh, I think just sort of peeling back the layers would be sort of interesting. And I don't know, I'm excited to see where it goes, want to get better at photography. That's never been something that's, uh, been required to do too much before. So, um, like I said, I think it's, uh, I think it's something where I've always looked up to, wanted to work here and, um, I'm happy to be here. And I think it, it makes a lot more sense. I'm happy to be working more on, the objective side of covering it in a news media manner, rather than, um, you know, whether it's SEO content or on a sales driven side.
0: Great, I love to hear all that. I, I want to sort of respond to one thing you said, and that was kind of deconstructing what some of these materials and things are and I, I feel you there, I kind of gave up on this myself a little while ago. And what it basically is, is like you recognize this material, no matter how cool it is, the brands are treating it like it's the next gold. And you're like, it's cool, but it's not anywhere near as expensive as the gold or the next gold. You really shouldn't be charging this much for it. watch brand. Like, I just stopped that fight. I'm like, they're going to do that. they are, take-
1: uh, are you talking about bronze gold with that one there?
0: <laughs> oh my God, just so many things from the carbons and weird <laughs> layered this and that that they treat as the next best thing. I'm like, and they just keep charging more and more and more for them. And I'm like, guys, steel costs more than this. And and that's just the sort of marketing shenanigans they do that I just I just gave up trying to police it. If something is worth a, is too expensive, I'll say, "Well, you're paying a lot for it." I'll I'll throw a statement in there, but like I'll, I'll see what you can do. Maybe you can pick up where I left off and do better than me. But I, I feel you is my point.
1: Oh, I don't think we're ever gonna get a you know in a good look or a very objective sense of what these are. But I think discussing them in context of each other, you know, I think, um, you know, the brands who use a lot of them the most are probably the best ones to look at. And you're not going to get the info from them directly, but like uh, case in point, Panerai. They do a lot of different types of materials. You've got their Carbotech stuff. You've got other composite. They've got some names that are some of the most broad I've ever heard. But then you'll notice on certain watches they make other components out of different things. And then you, you start pulling the thread a little bit. Well, like why? Like why do so many carbon watches have titanium case backs? It's because carbon itself is like a polymer. It's like a plastic. There needs to be some threaded thing inside. And so most carbon watches have a metal core, whether or not people, you know, know that uh, is a different thing, but it's like a metal core with built around with this carbon infused plastic, if you will. Um, but th- those type of things where, you know, why is the crown guard a different material than the middle case? Oh, well, look at the structure. It has to have a different, you know, wear nature, It, uh, you know. Uh, carbon might be super strong, but abrasion resistance might be less than obviously something like ceramic. So I think some of those may be more in that manner of the material sciences side. And I'm sure I'll be phoning some um, non-watch industry people to have them weigh in in a non-watch industry manner about it. Um, but yeah, I think the the real answers are going to come from outside of the watch industry about the materials. Um, 904L steel isn't that much more expensive than 316, but you know don't ask anyone at Rolex that, (laughs) you know.
0: Well, you know, we were talking about columns and, you know, columns begin with a name, right? So I'm just brainstorming here, you know, the word material and the word marketing, material marketing, the marketing of materials, something like that. That could be a column that you do for a while. You could take a material and you could ask yourself, is it worth it? And does it actually make sense for watches? And this, those are two questions. Is it, va- is, it, is it worth the high price or is it not that expensive? And does it even make sense for watches? Does it offer more durability, more beauty, more wear resistance? Because a lot of new materials like are just new for, for novelty's sake. They don't actually advance it. Like bronze, like bronze is a step backwards. I guess it's like budget, like a budget looking gold or something like that. But like it's a step backwards from steel. Like, you'd never be like, you know what we should do? Go back to bronze now that we have steel. Like, nobody in engineering would ever say that.
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, it is it is the novelty of it. You know, I think, I think certain components can benefit from being made of certain materials that benefit them as a whole. But to make the whole watch out of X, Y, or Z, yeah, 90% of that comes down to novelty. And sometimes it's simply, we wanted to make it green, and other times it's, we wanted it to turn green after you sweat on it. But you know, either way, it's, yeah, I think it, it it is strictly a novelty, but you know, I think, is it different or is it better is probably a question that if you asked it throughout the watch industry, you're probably going to find it's often just different because what are we going to do since the beginning of time, all watches have told time that's then their core function. So We've come up with other things to make them interesting, whether it's additional complications or new case materials or aesthetic novelties or, you know, chiming mechanisms. But, you know, we're doing so we're always trying something to make them more interesting or do something new and materials are one way to do that. But it's, I think the easiest way, I think it's one of the ones where it has to be the most objective to say the watch looks cool because it's got an animated bird thing on the dial yeah, that's cool from a visual perspective. But if you're doing the new material, there should be a reason why it's better or at least different or excels in a different category. And so I think there's a little bit more to pick at there versus, you know, novel complications where some of that is just, I think, some manufacturers just flexing a little bit for everyone.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ripley, this has been great. We're out of time, everyone. This has been Ripley Sellers from the Blog2Watch team. You can go read his articles um, on our website. Uh, Ripley, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This is uh, this is fun. This has literally been your and I's longest conversation, so uh, I'm I'm glad people uh, get to hear it. It won't be our
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at a blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.